morning we're continuing in the second chapter of Ephesians. If you would uh, please turn with me there at Ephesians chapter 2. This morning we'll be looking at verses 4 through 9. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Amen. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, it's the most extraordinary passage here, which simply reflects the truth of how you have called men and women to yourself throughout history. And so it is not a strange passage to us, but one which is both familiar and deeply loved. And we pray that uh, your own spirit would even now uh, help us to more uh, profoundly understand it and love it so that we might praise you more deeply for the salvation which is ours and flows from grace through faith in Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Henry Ironside once uh, communicated a uh, story of a, a young man that he, he knew who was uh, in a church service and was uh, basically uh, testifying to his newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And with a big smile on his face, he, he kind of went on and on in his testimony. And, uh, but the point that he was trying to make above everything else was the fact that um, God had done it and he gave God the glory. And he was uh, uh, just, uh, just filled with praise for this God of great mercy. And, uh, and he sat down, and, and the person in charge, who didn't actually see the scriptures quite the same way, uh, stood up and uh, basically uh, called to the young man. He, said the, he says, uh, you seem to indicate that when you were saved, God did it all. He says, wasn't there anything you did prior to God saving you? Uh, what did you do? What was your part? And uh, the young man jumped right back up on his feet and he said, oh yeah. He said, there was. He says, I had a part played for sure. He says, for the first 30 years of my life, I ran as far and fast away from God as I possibly could. That was my part. He says, but God took out after me and ran me down. That was his part. In many respects, that's uh, precisely what we see here uh, this morning because it, it pictures so very well how this passage picks up on the heels of the one that we looked at last week. 
Because you remember the uh, first three verses of this chapter, verses 1 through 3, uh, communicate to us the absolute spiritual death into which every man, woman, and child is born, with the exception of Jesus Christ, and how that renders us absolutely unwilling and incapable of, uh, of seeking God for any, any reason at all. And yet, as we see now, God chased us down. God pursued us. God graced us with salvation. And he came to us in mercy. And Christians are, as it were, dead men and dead women made alive. Zombies restored, as it were. And it's a, it's a marvelous passage. Now, there are many reasons why we could look at this and, uh, and think, yeah, this is really important. And certainly one of them is the simple fact that when we understand more profoundly what God has done, our praise for him, the praiseworthiness of his name for the salvation that he has provided us is astonishing. And it, and it stirs within our own souls a deeper love of him, a deeper uh, sense of his worthiness, his greatness, and his mercy. But second, it's also a deep sense of encouragement for those of us who know people who still at this time, for, for whatever reason, remain outside of the kingdom, who do not yet have life given to them by God. And so we look at those people and, you know, with the eyes of flesh, we can see, gosh, they've, they've got these habits, they've got these patterns, they've done these things that just, we just don't, they're too old, you know, they're too set in their ways, they'll never change. Now, this text tells us that doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Because that's where every single one of us was. Every one of us was. Before God in his mercy reached down and changed us. In an instant, in a flash, forever. So this is a magnificent text. Probably, um, well, I'd rank it up there pretty high on the list of favorites for most Christians anyway. And uh, not that I want to speak for you necessarily, but I think that's safe to say that. Anyway, the text is broken up uh, very nicely into uh, three, three parts, verses 4 and 5, 6 and 7. And eight and nine. So that's the way we'll proceed. I want to begin, however, by looking at the first two words of verse four, which are absolutely stunning to me. These words actually are found in dozens of places in the scriptures. And every time you look them up, what you see is that, that God comes to people in the most extraordinary and uh, disturbing circumstances, and he changes them. He intervenes. He does something remarkable. Let me just give you a few. A few more than a few. Examples of that. Genesis 8. Mo, or Noah and his family are in the ark. They've been floating around forever. And it's been raining hard. Nothing like what we've seen. Okay? We're talking tragedy here. He looks out. The family looks out, everybody looks out, and they wonder, is this rain, this water, is it ever going to leave? Is it ever going to go away? Are we going to float on this boat with these, these filthy animals forever? The text says, but God 
remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Genesis 50. Genesis 50, Joseph is talking to his brothers. He's saying, you know, he says, I know darn well that when you guys threw me in the pit and then sold me into slavery, you had evil in mind. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Judges 15. Samson's in the desert. He's thirsty. He can't find water. He's in deep trouble. But God split the hollow place so that water came out of it. And when he drank, his strength returned and he revived. David, in all of his pomp and powers, king of Israel, decided that he was going to build a temple for the living God. But God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you are a man of war and have shed blood. The psalmist, these arrogant men, going in and going out, boasting about what they have and who they are, talking big stuff. But God will shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they will be wounded. Rich men, rich men bank all of their monies. They build their storehouses. And then God speaks to them, and says, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who alone would you have prepared? You and I are surrounded by a culture that, that views faith as foolish, right? That looks as though it's condescendingly wise. It looks down on us, thinks we're impoverished, weak. 1 Corinthians tells us, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world, world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. When Paul was depressed, he rejoiced saying, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. When Epaphroditus was sick unto death, Paul wrote, but God had mercy on him. And here in our text, verse 3 says, we were dead, dead, dead in trespasses and sins. And verse 4 says, but God made us alive in Christ Jesus. But God. Brethren, whatever the human circumstances and needs are. I mean, we just went through a list of several, right? Physical and emotional depre depletion and fatigue, discouragement, lack of hope, cultural persecution, arrogance, mockery, depression, great illness, people trying to do us harm, poorly laid plans. People who were spiritually dead before God. None of it matters in the face of his appearance. But God... Brethren, at the risk of being misunderstood or thought hard-hearted, I want to tell you that it doesn't matter if you're sick today. And it doesn't matter if you're depressed today. It doesn't matter if you're up to your eyeballs in temptation and sin today and feel like you're going under. It doesn't matter if your world is crumbling. Because these words 
are true. But God, they contain the whole gospel that this God has intervened, he has invaded, as it were, our world to change our circumstances forever. And no more profoundly than coming to people who are spiritually dead and making them spiritually alive by joining them to his son. Some of us here ought to be glad today. And some of us here, frankly, ought to shout today. We ought to shout that God has delivered me. I was downcast and God lifted me up. I was depressed and God let me see the light. I was dead and God made me alive. I was sick unto death. But God raised me up. See, no problem can stand. No discouragement can survive. No illness can take the field. No sin can drag us into the pit. Because God stands ready, willing, and able to reach out and take hold of us. And that's precisely what these two, these two words are all about. But God, doesn't matter what the circumstances are, doesn't matter what we see with our eyes, the reality is that God breaks in. Somebody shout amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, why did God intervene in our situation? Well, Paul goes on and says, because he was rich in mercy. And because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, as we've seen, as we've studied this, this epistle, that God, from the very outset, from before the foundation of the world, before the beginning of time, he set his love upon us in Christ, freely choosing to do so. We weren't even, quote-unquote, in existence, except anywhere in his mind. And yet he chose to, to love us, to forgive us of our sin, through the person and the work of his own son. And in doing that, the text tells us he made us alive. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that this, this being made alive is basically being given a new disposition. Paul calls it being made a new creature, a new creation in Christ. New disposition. It doesn't matter to me. It all amounts to the same thing. We have literally been incredibly changed. Where we were spiritually dead to God, suddenly he, he's real to us. Where the scriptures were so much gobbledygook, they now have meaning. We understand what they say. We look out upon the world and, and we can't see it the way we once saw it. It's different. Or rather, should I say, we're different. Because the change has been wrought within us. Something has happened to our minds. Something has happened to our hearts. Something has happened to our wills. This new disposition, this, this new life that has been given to us is something that transforms us totally as people. We have been changed. But Paul goes on now and he tells us something about what's involved in this new life, in this change, when it, and it takes hold of us. He says, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus 
in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now we've, we've heard this language before. We've heard it a lot in these last few weeks. But what Paul does here is he just repeats again and again this important doctrine of what it means for Christians to belong, to be joined to, to be in Jesus Christ. Now this union with Christ has, has two aspects. The first is called the federal aspect, or if you would, it's more abstract. And it's essentially this. It essentially states that what happened to Jesus Christ happened to us. Sort of like what the president does happens to us. What the Congress determines happens to us. Right? The president says we're going to war. It's not just the president who goes to war. We go to war. Why? Because he's our representative. He's our federal head, as it were. The Congress. The Congress elects to give us trillions of dollars worth of debt. And it doesn't just affect us, but it affects our children. It affects our grandchildren. Perhaps those who are yet unborn. And in the same way, Adam was the federal head of the race. And somehow, in him, when he sinned, we sinned. And that sin has passed to us. But in Christ, Paul is saying we have a new head. And our head now is no longer Adam, but Jesus Christ. So that what has happened to him has happened to us. And so, for instance, if you look at Romans chapter 6, you see Paul saying very clearly there that in some way, when, when Christ was crucified and dead to trespasses and sins, to the guilt of sin, so were we. We were made dead to it. That somehow when Christ was raised to newness of life to God the Father, so were we. And here he says that exact same thing. He says somehow we have been resurrected and ascended into the heavenly places because we are joined to Jesus Christ. (laughs) Now, this isn't just abstract. Because the second aspect of it is it really is more experiential. It's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a vital, organic, if you will, union with Jesus Christ as well. In fact, he speaks about it himself in John chapter 15. And I don't know that we could do any better than to read those words. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. I mean, just think about what a vine and branches, what does that mean? Well, think about what flows between the vine and the branches. The the same sap that nourishes the one nourishes the other. It doesn't stay separated somehow, but it flows mutually between the two. And Paul, at the end of chapter 1 here, has, has basically said the same thing, only his analogy, his picture was different. He's talking about the head and the body. The members of the body, the fingers, the arms, the hands, the organs. All overseen by the head. Yet joined to it. Well, I mean the same blood that flows through these these fingers, this leg, these lungs. Is exactly the same blood that flows through the head. That somehow there's this, this organic, this vital union. That's not just abstract but is real. Now, we may not feel it. Nevertheless, it is true. 
And what Paul is basically saying here is that both of these relationships, the federal and the organic, make us join to Christ in such a way that every spiritual blessing that is his becomes ours. And Paul goes on to say why that's the case. He says, in order that in the ages to come, he, meaning God, might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. In other words, the reason that God has done all of this is not just so that we can be blessed, and certainly there's a great to be said for that, but so that God's glory might be proclaimed forever by every mouth in the universe that he has displayed his grace, his mercy, and his kindness towards undeserving creatures. You and I. On these last two verses, Paul tells us how he's done that. First, he says it's not by works. Imagine an airplane flying over the South Atlantic. And it crashes and and literally doesn't kill the people on board. Somehow it manages to get into the water okay. And, and, And there are three people on board. One is an Olympic swimmer. Another guy can swim fairly well. The third one can't swim at all. The Olympic swimmer says, follow me, men, and I'll get us to land. Of course, they're a thousand miles from anywhere. He jumps out into the water and he starts this magnificent Australian crawl. You just can't believe how fast he's going. Creating a wake, he's moving so fast. The other two jump out in the, in the water behind him. The guy who can't swim is drowned within 30 seconds. Boop, down he goes. Guy who's a modest swimmer, he keeps up with him for about the first half hour. Then he runs out of gas, and down he goes. This Olympic swimmer, however, I'm telling you, guy can, guy can swim. So he's really going. He swims for 24 hours and covers 50 miles. And at that rate, He's only got 19 days to go if he doesn't slow down. But you know he's going to slow down. You know he's not going to make that other 950 miles to the coast. He's going to drown too. See, it doesn't matter how, how good we are. It doesn't matter how hard we can paddle. Or if we can't paddle a bit. The simple fact of the matter is, is that by our own efforts, there is simply no way that we can achieve the kind of goodness and acceptance with God that he requires. Because he's holy. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, we are fundamentally flawed. We are sinners from the get-go. From the very moment of our conception, uh, David says, And when the scripture says that it's not by works, that's the truth. Well, if we're not saved by works, well, how are we saved? Well, Paul, of course, tells us right here. That's the answer of our text and the answer of many other texts in scripture. He says, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Most of us are 
could probably quote the fact that, that grace is unmerited favor, right? It's an undeserved gift. We deserve punishment. We deserved hell, condemnation. God instead graced us with forgiveness. That's what grace is. It is a free gift. During the Spanish-American War, Clara Barton was, uh, was uh, heading up the Red Cross in Cuba. And, uh, and she, as you know, was, uh, was a master doing that. One day, uh, Colonel Theodore Roosevelt showed up. And uh, he wanted to buy some food for his Rough Riders who were uh, tired and exhausted from, uh, from their uh, warring. And uh, uh, she refused to sell them anything. He was stunned. Uh, he was willing to pay with his own money. But he, he needed the supplies for his men. He was, he was commenting to, to another officer a little later on. And the guy said, a colonel says, you don't have to pay for it. You just have to ask. And all of a sudden, Roosevelt understood immediately that she would have given him anything that he'd asked for but that he couldn't buy it. It wasn't for sale. And that's the way it is with our forgiveness. It isn't for sale. We can't barter with God. We can't make a deal with him. So somehow, if we do this or don't do that, that he'll forgive us. He has forgiven us on the basis of what Jesus has done. And Paul goes on to tell us now, that the way we appropriate that is through faith. Every person lives by faith. People who say they don't, simply don't understand what faith is, because they do, every single day. You go to a, open up a can, and you open it up, and you eat the, uh, the contents, and you, you, you assume that it's not contaminated. You go to your spigot, and you turn on the water, and you drink the water down, you assume that it's clean. You drive across the bridge on the highway, you assume it's going to hold you up and not collapse. Stick your money in the bank, you assume it's going to be there. It's going to be safe and sound, kept free from, from thieves. Right? Those are all faith assumptions. You're doing that by faith. Everybody in the world makes thousands of faith decisions every single day. Everybody lives by faith. But when it comes to the forgiveness of sins, faith is trusting that what God has said he has provided in Jesus Christ is the only sufficient means by which we can obtain that forgiveness. And we reach out and we grab it and simply believe it and trust it and act on it. (coughs) This, Paul says, is what saves us. It's what takes hold of what appropriates this grace gift that God lays before us in Christ. Last week we saw in Ezekiel 37, uh, those first verses, I think the first three or four verses that I read, that the picture of the valley of dry bones. You remember that. Um, in fact, I want to reread it right now. And just open up your imagination and see if you can picture it yourself. The hand of the Lord was on me. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them 
And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked, I mean, this is a gruesome picture, folks. And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? And I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. But if you keep reading, what you see is the grace and the power of God coming just the same way that Paul speaks of it here in these verses. Then the Lord said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. This, brethren, is precisely what Paul talks about in these verses. We were dead and made alive as the breath of God breathed into us new life in Jesus Christ by grace through faith in him. There is no greater message in the entire world, no greater reason why his people should rejoice than the fact of what he has done for each and every one of us. May God be praised, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are, uh, we are humbled by the fact that there is nothing that we can contribute, nothing that we can add, nothing that makes us worthy in your sight of the forgiveness of sin and the, the standing that we now have with you. It is all a gift. A gift of your grace, freely, freely offered to us in Christ. He has purchased it. He is the one who has been worthy. He is the one who has done it all from beginning to end. We praise you for that. And we acknowledge that it is, it is right that it should be so. That we should never stand before you and boast about anything that we have done but humbly acknowledge with lips full of praise that it is all of you. We praise you this day. And we thank you. Help us to remember these things, Lord, so that we don't try and live by the law, so we don't have to try and live before you on the basis of how we perform or fail to perform, but that we might live before you with our arms tightly clutching the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ, never again submitting to a yoke of slavery, 
but enjoying the newfound freedom of the children of God. For we ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.